understanding is the New Testament tells the story of how the evil in the world, whether it's political, social, personal, moral, emotional, psychological, um, has reached its height. In other words, it all comes together uh, in its opposition to Christ, and it is reversed. It's defeated. And so two things there. First, we can understand the nature of evil in and through the person and work of Christ, which is not normally the way this is done. I know this may sound odd to you, because usually when we talk about Christ, we don't bring in the issue of evil. What we would bring in is other issues like the problem of you know, sin. or So evil is usually something reserved in a college classroom for something like apologetics, that, oh, well, we'll talk about the problem of evil today. And then in an apologetics course, you never introduce the cross of Christ. You may not believe me. You just say, well, that's a travesty. But no, that's the travesty of modern evangelicalism, that we've lost the sense in which Christianity is really, and we are warriors in, uh, a, a cosmic battle against evil. Um, so there is a Christianity, unfortunately, that I think makes itself irrelevant by colluding with the evil of the world. I'm not sure that we should continue to call it Christianity, but I'm not going to be the one uh, to, to say, let's stop using that word. But where do we see this? Well, we'll see it in nationalism. That is where a, a Christianity co-opted by the state. Uh, capitalism, a Christianity that gives itself completely over to uh, notions of consumption and desire. Or maybe just in simple commitment to do evil on a personal level because so that good may abound. Uh, in some way... Uh, a Christianity that does not recognize um, the problem of evil and how the cross addresses it, I think makes itself irrelevant. But I, I hope you recognize I've just about that's just about everybody and every form of Christianity. The way that N.T. Wright puts it is theologies of the cross of how God deals with sin through the death of Jesus have not normally grappled with the larger problem of evil. Conversely, most people who have written about the problem of evil within philosophical theology have not grappled sufficiently with the cross as part of both the analysis and the solution of that problem. Now, in this uh, you've probably heard me do this. I'll just touch on it shortly. I'm not doing a theodicy. Even when I turn and begin to talk about evil in the next few slides, um, I'm not going to explain it at some, you know, final, in some final way. But what we have in the cross of Christ is, I think, a real-world defeat of evil, not just out there, but within ourselves, and then also corporately uh, as a body. So, uh, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of Christianity is about getting forgiven, dying, going to heaven, 
And evil is in some way explained either as part of God's plan or it's kind of shunted aside as, uh, you know, uh, a necessity that, uh, or it's pictured as a means of making souls better, you know, oh, you suffered this, so you'll be a better person. Um, as Wright puts it, much 19th, 20th century Christian thought has accepted the framework offered by the Enlightenment in which the Christian faith has the role of rescuing people from the evil world, that is, taking them out of the world without defeating evil, ensuring them forgiveness in the present and hereafter. Now, Wright has, I think, gone some way in at least saying, okay, here's what we should be talking about. Um, unfortunately, I think he in his own project has not specified to the degree, and nobody can do everything. We shouldn't blame anybody and say, oh, well. But I think that we can, in fact, begin to run down uh, the way that evil functions, uh, the way that it's systemic, and, and partly in the way that I've defined sin. So as a kind of initial definition, evil is the force of anti-creation, anti-life, the force which opposes and seeks to deface and destroy God's good world of space, time, and matter, and above all, God's image-bearing human creatures. And thus, death in this is the prime evil, right? Death is the, the way that you know, it is the, the final evil. It is the final enemy. Um, so uh, the question then is, well, how has the cross of Christ done this? Or how does Christ address the problem of evil? Um, let, me, let me begin then to run down a little bit about what evil is. It's not a theory, it's not, and so when we talk about uh, even salvation, we're not, and talk about theories of atonement, we need to recognize that ultimately what we are talking about are not theories of atonement. I don't really care what your theory of atonement is if you leave out the fact that in Christ... Uh, the real-world defeat of evil is being undertaken by God, right? That's what, uh, that uh, in these flesh and blood, time and space happenings, uh, here is the defeat of evil that the theories of atonement are trying to, we're trying to comprehend or understand or illustrate. But we always have to keep in mind that the reality of that is posited then in the person, work of Christ, and the church that we've engaged that, that battle to some degree. John, jump in here at any time you want. <laughs> um, there are two theories of evil, and I'm going to do an impossible thing. I'm going to give you two contradictory theories of evil and tell you they're both true. Um, but I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this in such a way. I don't know that anyone approaches this in the way that I that I'm about to approach it. Um, but I think it 
it then acknowledges uh, that what both camps are saying is in part true. The one theory, Jake, is privation theory. Can you run that down? Being that evil is privation on good, and it's a corruption or rebellion. But it might the question of what about faith? Okay, that that uh, evil is a parasite on the good. It's a and so, yeah, is there, then usually what is said in privation theory is that privation is a failure, a weakness, and especially in, in terms of humanity, it's an incapacity. Of the will. Of the will, an incapacity of the will. Uh, well, then it would be impossible under this theory for somebody to will or willfully do evil, which would leave out certainly a satanic kind of person or even somebody who was demonically or satan, you know, of, of, uh, like the Joker and, you know, Batman. I think that's a problem. I think that's a mark against privation theory. But I don't think it's devastating to the theory. It only calls if for, if that is a, in other words, if that is a part of the Augustinian picture, I'm not, uh, I've heard people argue that in fact that it need not be a part. Uh, then I think that's the part that I would want to get rid of because in some way, I think that while evil is a privation on the good, and we do not want to assign evil some sort of ontological ground or being. I think that in both Satan uh, and in human beings, that in fact we have the capacity to willfully do evil. I just happen to believe, maybe you're not that dark. I don't think Trent is. Trent's, you know, uh, uh, I just think that that there are people uh, that are uh, of the, a Joker type, uh, you know, personality uh, that literally have given themselves over to a project of you know, now even to begin to identify who that might be or what. Uh, I, I just uh, we could argue that. So if you'll set aside that part of privation theory momentarily and say, okay, well, in privation theory, even there, though, we recognize that Satan and human beings are created by God and uh, that there is not a claim for some sort of ontological ground for evil, but it's simply a claim to say that evil has a uh, a place that it lodges in human. The other theory is what? Radical evil. Trent, do you know this one? I don't Okay. Radical evil is to say just the opposite, that evil has its own ontological ground, that evil uh, is, in fact, a force in the world uh, unto itself, 
that it is an entity that is not dependent upon the good. Uh, especially after the Holocaust, many people began to think that what had been unleashed was something other than, you know, privation theory often pictures evil in terms of a kind of weakness. And what you're getting in uh, the radical evil is evil is not a weakness, it's power to be. You know, usually if you sit next to a, somebody who's terribly evil, you don't feel their weakness. You, in fact, feel fear because you feel the force of something coming up against you. Um, and ironically here, the people who have promoted radical evil have been atheists. Uh, they're doing, it's a group of uh, psychoanalysts and uh, critical theorists that have uh, published on this. And, and, of course, this is my interest in Slavoj Zizek, is that he holds to some form of radical evil. Now, I've given you two contradictory theories. How could they possibly fit together? And of course, in the end, they can't. But let me suggest that the belief in radical evil on the order that you have it in Genesis 3 that God you know is pictured as irrelevant to man's capacity he's more he's not mortal he's immortal uh, <laughs> he's has life unto himself. That's the lie from Satan, unfortunately, that has captivated, I believe, the world. In other words, I just think in some way or another, this is what pagan religion, this is what most Christians probably teach, is that man is innately mortal, just like Satan taught, taught us. Uh, if you begin there, I don't know how you ever get back to uh, any, you know, I'm not saying that you can't be a Christian, but how could you ever sort that out with what's happening in Christianity? I think it's a hard task. But the the point with radical evil is that it's a deception. But it's a deception that you can inhabit. It's a lie that can be constituted as a kind of reality for you on the order of the deception of sin. So much so that even human subjectivity, the human subject, might be one who we would imagine in our own minds, maybe consciously or unconsciously, probably the latter, unconsciously, that we imagine that we're immortal and that we cannot be destroyed, that we are like God knowing good and evil. And if that's the case, you've just posited what? The capacity for radical evil in human beings. If we're immortal and we turn evil, that's radical evil. I think that's a lie. But it's a lie that can be constituted as a reality. And reality may be there, you know, uh, uh, what we mean by it. reality is a... Uh, a, uh, a virtual reality. 
The covenant with death as it's pictured in Scripture, I think, goes along with this. You know, uh, that the picture is that human beings in their fallenness have entered into a deception, and the nature of that deception is to, in some way, absolutize uh, or to make absolute human categories that often deals with, uh, as uh, the picture in Isaiah 28, we've all done Isaiah 28, everybody's familiar with it, that you enter into a covenant with the grave in which what is being pictured is that death, in fact, is not a destruction, but a new birth that death is an entry into an alternative world. This is the ground, I think, of understanding that's laid in the lie of Satan, you won't die. It is what Jesus says is the native language, you know, that Satan is a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Those two things go together. Um, it is, Jesus will run down the history of murder in Luke. We've done that passage, Luke 11. 44, uh, in which he says, you know, that uh, the scribes say, well, surely, Jesus, you don't mean to say that we're like whitewashed tombs. And he said, no, you're, you're, you're even worse. You know, you're, uh, that the, the history of murder can be laid at your feet. That is that the uh, thing hidden since the foundation of the world, uh, the human dilemma is being revealed to them. Uh, when Satan says, I am, and there is none beside me, and we find the human, you know, that's actually in the words of the king of Tyre. And I think that many people take up that I am to say, oh, I am immortal. I am strong. I am beautiful. I am healthy. I am, is it, I'm doing Joel Steen again. I'm sorry. Um, I think uh, that's right out of the, I think that's satanic. Now, I don't mean that some people who do this are necessarily that their whole life is given over Satan. I just think they've fallen into a deception that is on the order of the deception of believing uh, that um, there is, that death in some way is not a reality. I won't read this. This uh, Walter Brugman. There's there's a long section in Brugman, but the word for uh, the what the Israelites are doing in Isaiah that they've created a god and they've named the god Death Mont. Now the argument is: is this a literal god or is Isaiah being you know poetic? And I don't know that it matters one way or another, uh, but that's literally, that's sort of what always happens in an idolatrous religion, that you can literally have a category of death and destruction that is absolutized as a force unto itself. I think that's the picture that people would bow down and worship mocked in place of God. They would bow down and worship death. They would go to the graveyards. Uh, and what they're doing is what Jesus is going to undo in the cross of Christ. Death is made an absolute. The covenant with death 
describes the universal human predicament, and I think that's what the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus addresses. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto myself. Um, that uh, Jesus is saying that here is the universal appeal of the gospel, the, the cross of Christ. You know, why the cross? Because it addresses the human, the human predicament. Uh, you've heard me. The, the covenant with death, I think, is what Jesus is addressing when he says, whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Our tendency is toward systems of salvation. We've done the thing with pride and shame, that pride is a kind of cover of the reality of death that's experienced in shame. You know, if you think about what's happening in death denial, it's a double negative that you deny, you know, a negative death, which is a negative. Uh, you reify through this double negation, nothing. Right? You reify. You make real something. You make a reality, a concrete reality, something that has no uh, reality. And then we imagine uh, that this is a category unto itself. Uh, and this is the part of radical evil I wouldn't agree with. Uh, you know, is evil, can we... Uh, can there be a kind of negative human achievement? Can you tap into, Chris, you may want to disagree with me here, but. Well, let me give you a concrete illustration. The idol is nothing. Uh, if the idol is nothing, I'm not sure the idolater disagrees with you, but you understand when the idolater says the idol is nothing, they're taking nothing to be an absolute something. Mott, death is my God. I will worship Mott. The ancestors are dead, but I'll worship the ancestors because death itself is an absolute category. Uh, it is to take nothing and make it something. That's the lie. That's the deception. But that not that what we always do in sinfulness? That we take what is essentially nothing. You know, our, our desire is really bent upon achieving an absolute that is nothing. Um... So that in joke, you know, think of Batman and the Joker. The Joker seems to be wanting to tap into forces of evil or think, and you know who Anton LaVey, I don't know if Anton LaVey is even still around, uh, the satanic church. You know about the satanic church. Um, can you do a deal with the devil? Can you manipulate the demons? This is what every good, you know, in Japan, every shrine is built with the idea, I can do a deal with the devil. And what I'm saying is, 
You can't do it. Because what you're imagining, you're taking nothing and making it something. Demons, the devil, evil, as if that's a category that you could tap into and channel that power. No, the power is a power only uh, of, of undoing death. In this sense, I believe in privation theory. Now, you may, you may still want to disagree with me and say, wait a minute, aren't there? John, you want to jump in here? Yeah, so uh, perhaps it's not a matter of disagreeing, but if we were to change the categories, of course, I agree wholeheartedly that we're talking about power. We'll know there's actually nothing there. But if we were to stop talking about the will, which is what privation theory centers around, and talk about agency, so even though at every shrine in Japan you can't actually tap into some, you know, ulterior power that is over and against God, you can still go to the shrine and worship there, and that can still characterize the way you live your life, which is how, or the way in which the radical evil becomes a reality as well. You or can, a false reality. Yeah, you can constitute a reality on the basis of what is ultimately nothing. I think uh, this is very uh, – John Milbank, I think that he's wrong in just connecting it to modernity, but he says that the forces of evil that we have seen in the past 100 years all are from the nihilism of modernity. But actually you could just say that's the nihilism of humans trying to establish themselves over and against God. Yeah, this is both Milbank and Cunningham. Uh, they're, they're, what they want to say is that nihilism is a characteristic of modernity. Uh, well, I think they're right. It is a characteristic of modernity. That is, in which you would take nothing. You can do this philosophically. I don't know if they're going to do this for you, Trent, at Lincoln. It would be interesting if they did. Uh, but the project that Cunningham takes up in his book, the, the Genealogy of Nihilism, is to trace philosophically how nihilism is always the underlying realm. And by nihilism, he just means what I've said. You take nothing and make it absolute. Milbank has done the same thing with his book, big book on sociology. He's shown how the sociology is ultimately grounded in taking nothing and making it a necessary and absolute category. This may sound unconvincing or almost trivial until you engage this and see how it functions. Nothing's a tricky category. That becomes obvious the instance you read somebody like Heidegger, you know, because he, he is literally doing what the Buddhists do, and that is he'll take nothing, death, and say, it's only as you hold yourself out into death and nothingness that you encounter the absolute, and so then can come to authenticity. The way that Jesus says it is, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for the fear that his deeds will be exposed. 
What is darkness? It's the absence of light. You know, there is, darkness is not a reality unto itself. You know, in the beginning, uh, there was nothing. So, darkness in a human sense is something that we constitute for ourselves, right? We shut out the light. We make our world dark. We constitute a reality devoid of God. I don't know that any, any creature other than human beings or the devil himself could so constitute a reality, but I presume that we can. First John says, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus die? Very simply, to destroy the works of the devil, right? What are the works of the devil? We know what the works of the devil are. I think from the beginning uh, you know, book in Genesis is no mystery what the work of the devil is. When Jesus and Paul and others in Scripture talk about the work of the devil, they're going to reference then those events that occur in Genesis three. Uh, so I don't mean to, in some way, picture the devil as, and I don't think John e is either, as this entity that Jesus is beating up on the cross, but what is the work of the devil? Deception. What kind of deception? To make a covenant with death, to enter into a covenant with the grave in which you picture that as a final reality that we can, see, that's a final reality that we can have, mm. that we can attain to in this deceived system. But, of course, are, when you attain to or hold yourself out into death and nothingness, have you achieved ultimate reality, true authenticity? No, I don't think so. And that's the point of the cross of Christ. You know, Go ahead, inter uh, interestingly enough, you reminded me of a page in Zizak where he is putting C.S. Lewis next to Heidegger. Of course, C.S. Lewis is advocating that reality or an authentic experience is within our normal, everyday reality of experiencing God's love and participating in God's love. And Heidegger, of course, is picturing this in the ecstatic that you mentioned. Zizek says this, It is not that in the divine mystical experience we step out in ecstasis, of our normal experience of reality. It is this normal experience, which is ecstatic, to use Heidegger's word, in which we are thrown outside into entities, and the mystical experience signals the withdrawal from this ecstasy. So where do we have uh, ecstasy in God's love? Well, actually, it's in the normal experience of God's love. It's in loving him, being loved by him, and loving others, not in the mystical experience.
So that our pursuit of ecstasy is just to confound the predicament that we're already in. We're already outside of the love of God. And the more ecstasy we would, if it's the drug or the experience, the more we would take, uh, the more we would confound the absence, the problem of the absence of God and the absence of neighbor and the absence of love. Is that what Zizek say? Yes, oddly enough. He's very Christian there. Zizek is, is very Christian for an atheist. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, he'd say he's a better Christian than Milbank. So. <laughs> I don't know. Some days I think so. James says, God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one of, is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. The picture is this thing called death is not just what happens to the end of our, at the end of our life, but our, our dealing in death is a continual activity of human life. And so when we talk about covenant with death, it's a kind of covenant that we continually reenact. And, you know, this is the drawing together that Paul does, that death and desire are joined together then in this covenant uh, that Paul will picture as I, I think what he's picturing then is the rise of, sinfulness in man in which we're split within and uh, sin then puts us to death not that Paul died or that Adam died the day that he ate of it or that we die the day that we sin Mm -hmm. in a in a physical mortal way but we take up this death uh, dealing kind of nature into ourselves so it'll be pictured in different ways in Scripture. It's a consumptive knowledge. That is, the more you seek this thing, the more it will consume you. Uh, it is that desire itself is usually, not always, is usually equated with sin. There are passages, depending on how what the Greek or Hebrew is, that we might talk about a desire for God. But Paul in Romans and most places in the New Testament are going to distinguish between a sinful desire and this other category, whatever we might call it. Uh, the, the conclusion to all this, and I'm just, it, it is, okay, so we have a covenant with death that alienates us from God, that constitutes evil as a force that Christ has reckoned with at the cross. He's exposed the covenant. He's exposed the lie that death is in some way a final reality, or in fact is the, you know, death is a kind of negative power of the state, right? They can kill him. It's a negative power of evil men. They can always kill you. Or, use the instruments of death, of oppression, torture, uh, or, you know, just just enslavement. And so Christ has exposed the lie, but he's 
and reconstituted a community of people in his body and his kingdom that are going to do life together, not on the basis of the covenant with death, but on the basis of resurrection life. What I'm doing here, and I won't draw this out very long, is the cross of Christ and the kingdom of God, the gospels and the epistles, the Old Testament and the New Testament are often separated. You get that? That, oh, you're going to talk about Jesus died on the cross and we're saved, and that's sort of an objectified, one-off picture of, of salvation. But then how does the church relate to the cross of Christ? So focus on the, uh, the cross in a Protestant or a Catholic sense is often tended to leave out the church. On the other hand, focus on the kingdom as tended, you know, are we saved through as a kingdom of people in a kind of liberal Protestantism? That is tended to see the life of Jesus simply as an ethical example. Oh, well, he's, he's uh, you know, he's the one who gives us the archetype of the categorical imperative. Um, and focus on the cross has tended then to see the life of Jesus as a prelude to the passion. And so usually in Protestantism, when we do life of Christ, we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about the prelude to the passion. Mm -hmm. But if we can talk about the kingdom of God as the way in which we are saved, and we understand that the life, death, and resurrection is the inauguration of this kingdom, then we can bring the cross and the kingdom together. So this this gets missed, you know, even the creedal formula. He's Is this the Nicene Creed, John? Born of a virgin, crucified and raised on the third day. What's missing? You know, well, that's the life of Christ, but uh, though it be missing maybe in the formula, it's certainly not missing in the theology of the early church or in Eastern Orthodoxy, which pictures the incar- uh, which pictures the atonement not as just the cross, but as the entire incarnation. So God is incarnating human life in Himself, but maybe more importantly, He is incarnating uh, us into the life of God. So that for the Eastern Church, when does the atonement begin? Well, it's not. Uh, with the Passion Week, but it's with the birth of Christ, so that through Christ's entire life, he is showing us what it means to live as redeemed, and he is demonstrating fellowship between humanity and God. And in that, I would go with the Eastern Orthodox sense of atonement. Uh, This is Irenaeus, right, that Jesus recapitulates or is that no? That's yes, and yeah, that's. Uh, I actually, I've got Irenaeus in before in front of me. He, in his direct speech on the atonement, he includes several things and brings them all together that we don't necessarily in the Western Church. One that primarily our problem is that because of our deception, we have then willingly become servants or disciples of the deceiver. 
So we are actively participating in evil. That's something that we're doing. That's our problem. It's sin. To overcome that, God respects the freedom of our wills, but he demonstrates a defeat over death. He gives his life for our life, and he gives his flesh for his flesh, and he pours out uh, the spirit of the Father, even in this event, to bring about the union and fellowship of God and humanity. And then Irenaeus will say that by giving the spirit, God has raised humanity up to himself or to God. And this is by giving us incorruption and fellowship. Of course, incorruption, a reference to eternal life, but through the resurrection, meaning that the way we participate in God is because we are now embodying the place Jesus has, and that's our entryway into the Trinitarian life, which is the fellowship that we have with God. Now, on the recapitulation, what's being recapitulated is the Old Testament story, or uh, rather the history of Israel from the point of view of creatures, from humans, is being recapitulated in the incarnation of Christ. So Jesus fulfills completely and totally what it means to be a person in covenant with God or what it means to be an Israelite. And uh, through his death, we all then can enter into that place and be true Israel. And so the, the picture, I suppose, is on the order of Paul in describing Jesus as the second Adam. Here's the real human one. Here is the, the way that life should, should actually uh, be lived. And so the redemption is he passes through all of the categories of humanity from his birth life and redeems those categories for us to, and enables us to follow him there. That, that may sound like a simple picture to you, especially if you've not been indoctrinated into alternative theories of the atonement. Uh, but in fact, sort of do away with the idea of uh, a socio-political, social, economic entity uh, being the means by which we are saved. Are you saved economically? Are you saved? That may sound funny to people. Are you saved politically? Are yeah, you saved all those ways, right? Because all of those ways constitute what it means to be a human being. If you leave any of those categories out. Uh, the danger is that that's precisely the place in which, you know, this alternative kingdom uh, will be co-opted by the kingdoms of the world. Oh, I do Christianity, but I'm still a good capitalist. Maybe that's precisely, you know, the, the sin of the, the young, rich young ruler. He would follow Jesus if it weren't for that whole consumption of material goods thing. Mm -hmm. So I think there that we have to get a holistic picture, and I think the early church, Irenaeus may be, uh, you know, uh, a, a good model here of encapturing that, that it is a holistic system. So let's conclude. Let me just say a couple of concluding things. But when... What we are doing, or the way that we're seeing Christ is that he's inaugurating a kingdom, right? The life of Christ is the inauguration of an alternative kingdom. This is our prayer. This is Jesus' prayer, that uh, he's ruling out the notion that this is purely a heavenly kingdom, 
Thy kingdom come, we pray. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is instituting a kind of people who will pray that and bring it about. Jesus says that my kingdom is not from this world. Uh, the idea being that he doesn't set up a kingdom on the basis like other kingdoms, but it's still throughout John, he will several times acknowledge that the kingdom is here among you. So in conservatism, I'm afraid Jesus died for my sins, and that becomes the end of it. And what is missed in that is, first of all, what sin is, and second of all, there is a lack of appreciation for any kind of concrete understanding uh, of what the death of Jesus does for us. It tends to abstract the meaning of Jesus' life and sacrifice from history. But if we understand the death of Jesus as inaugurating a kingdom that saves us, how are we saved? We're saved in and through history, right? We're saved in and through our daily activities. So the abstract understanding depoliticizes and a kind of, in a, in a sense, makes the kingdom of God some uh, future kingdom that's up in heaven, and it isolates the death and, and kingdom of God. So the picture that I've given you is a kind of initiation then into let's bring the kingdom and the cross together and recognize that uh, the way that we're saved then is in and through the church, is in and through the body of Christ. John, you want to say anything else? And, and, no, that's good. Okay. I do. This is this is a, a a very abbreviated version of what I do for a semester, and that is what the Gospel of John is doing. He's just picturing again and again. Here is Jesus, you know, the new Moses the embodiment of the law, the new temple, the fulfillment of the Sabbath, and he's showing how that then is enacted in the life of Christ. And, of course, you think, remember John's written about 85 AD. He's saying to Jews who do not have a temple or sacrifices or uh, any of these things available, here is true Judaism, here's true temple, here's true sacrifice. Uh, I think that's that it uh, it is a way of reading the Gospels, and it's so clear in John. You know, I, uh, it made me think of what's the trouble with just saying, "Well, we can read the Bible, re- reading the bi- biblical metaphors, and figure that we understand what the atonement is about." And as I was looking through this book I have here, just a reader of early Christians. I'm on the chapter on atonement, and Athanasius, who is living in between the Council of Nicaea and the the Council of Constantinople, a time which is called the vicissitudes, everybody's disagreeing with each other. At Nicaea, you had people who wanted to uh, strictly use biblical language only. The problem with that was you had three or four groups all using biblical language and meaning something different. And so Athanasius is very particular in saying, well, no, we have to explain what this means. And as he talks about the atonement, 
Uh, sure, you could get off into adoption or substitution, something like that. But his key themes and what he says has to be there, and I think this is hearkening back to the gospel narrative accounts of what actually happens, is that through Jesus' death, he is clothing us with incorruptibility. And so if you don't have, if you just leave the discussion in terms of even maybe the biblical metaphors, which of course are accurate, you could overplay substitution, or you could overplay adoption, and you could miss the fact that the main thing happening in the death of Christ is that he is defeating death and giving us the resurrection as a gift for us, that we might be able to follow him. But if you don't believe that man is, in fact, given over to corruption and mortality... Yeah, that doesn't mean anything, does it? Then it's not going to mean a thing to you, and I just don't know how you enter into New Testament Christianity. As far as I know, that is that that is becoming a more that that position is more and more challenged. I think in uh, certainly in academic circles. Yeah, I think you're right, and that problem is twofold. Not only is there this sort of ridiculous belief the native mortality and things like that. You have these little institutions who are probably wanting to talk about sin, or maybe this is just true of uh, low church Protestantism. We're going to talk about sin a lot, whereas maybe some academic theologians don't even, you know, they don't really believe in Satan or anything like that. But even if you're taking sin seriously, if you're not really for sure what sin is or how it affects the human subject, you might as well be having the same conversation that I don't really believe in a devil or anything. I don't know what uh, salvation must just occur in the mind of God or something like that. It just becomes very abstract very quickly. Yeah, that, that, uh, yeah, that's good that, that we got low church Protestants. When they think of sin, they're thinking of, of activities probably. Yeah. Don't be dancing or smoking or drinking. Don't you dare drink. We'll kick you out of school. Yeah. yeah, and that if you can avoid those things and pray five times, you know, <laughs> uh, then. But the problem is that these people, you know, that if that's your picture of the extent of sin, that you could give yourself over to the devil and be a good pietistic Christian under those terms, uh, not drinking, not dancing. I don't suppose Adolf Hitler did most of those things. You know. He was he was truly a kind of prude in many ways. It was just that little thing about killing Jews and taking over the world. <laughs> but who's going to hold that against him? Uh, I have who, a... Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just right. thinking there. I, uh, I had a question. I was just... This morning I listened to a the seminar, John Milbank and Rowan Williams. And they were discussing Rowan Williams' book on Augustine. And when Williams was asked to define the way he is reading privation in Augustine, he didn't give the answer that I thought he would give, uh, which would just be, well, it's a privation of the good. But actually what he wanted to say, and I don't know if he was really, which part of Augustine he's referring to because it changes, um, but he's saying and I think this gives you a more full-fleshed definition of sin. I wanted to see what you think about it. That the privation isn't simply a privation of good or the will's capacity to do good, 
but it's a privation of humans being willing and able to participate in God's uh, plans and purposes for creation. And so he was describing privation not only as a sort of parasitic type thing, but as a, um, I don't think, he may have used the word distortion. I was using it with you earlier, but a distortion or it's, it was active in his mind, but it was our actively pursuing the negative, even in Augustine. Isn't that sort of the conversation we were having today as well? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, I like that better as a definition, or at least a more refined definition. Yeah. I thought so. I thought it was very good. Yeah. Yeah. That, that may be the way that we normally talk about it is fairly abstract, and that makes it a more concrete yeah. understanding that, we, that our privation is an activity we carry out. Yeah. So I guess what Williams, he may be saying that you can, even in Augustine, distinguish between the will and human agency, such that even uh, Augustine's conception of privation theory doesn't necessarily have to be this complete uh, sort of incapacity, but there, there is an agency still active there. I don't know how true that is to Augustine, or you know, maybe Augustine's inconsistent on this as well. Well, I've actually I've actually run into other people that have said that 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 understanding of Augustine, in fact, need not be the case. That that's sort of a received understanding. Uh, that Augustine that the idea of a that it's an incapacity of the will. Yeah. Um, and simply that. Now that uh, I think that that is there in Anselm of Canterbury. Hmm. That when he begins talking about redemption. He's going to talk about redemption simply as an empowering or making capable the will that has been incapacitated by sin. So uh, the, the cross of Christ is then just to close the, the gap of incapacity to think rational thoughts or right thoughts about God. Yeah. Which is completely abstract. Yeah.